Hello and welcome to Bible 101. Please enjoy our Bible 101 series as we explore Genesis through Revelation. Also, listen to our roundtable discussions as myself, Greg Ross, and Eric Feeman talk about the major theological discussions of the Bible. Also, enjoy some of our interviews and apostolic apologetic series. We thank you so much for listening. Please let us know what you think by emailing BibleTTabernacle29 at gmail.com. That's B-I-B-L-E-T-T-A-B-E-R-N-A-C-L-E-29 at gmail.com. And also leave a comment to let us know what you think. Thank you for listening. Welcome to Bible 101. This is lesson number 31 of our Bible 101 series. Today we're going to give a brief summary of the life of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus, specifically focusing on his parables and a few of his miracles, and just kind of giving uh, an overall view of what Jesus' teaching was like, what his life was like, what made him so different from all of the other teachers that had preceded him and even those that would follow him. So let's begin with a word of prayer. Jesus, we thank you so much for the opportunity to study the word of God. Lord, speak to us today. Give us understanding and revelation, we pray. Guide me, your servant, Jesus. I can't do anything without you. Please help me, Jesus, and lead me, God, to the pertinent points that you want me to discuss today. Anoint the ears of every hearer. Help them to receive with meekness the engrafted word that's able to save their souls. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I would like to start with Matthew chapter number 5, and we're going to look specifically at the teachings of Jesus, some of the earliest teachings that we have. And this is called the Sermon on the Mount. And why it's so significant is, verse 1 says, And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him. Now remember, the previous chapter has said Jesus fasted 40 days, and afterward he was in hunger, and he was tempted by the devil. Remember that when Moses went up on the mountain to receive uh, the law from God, he went up onto a mountain, and he fasted for 40 days. So you're seeing the similarities. Remember, Matthew is going to present Jesus as the new Davidic ruler, the new uh, the king that will sit upon the throne forever. Uh, he's going to present him as the new Abraham, the father of a great nation. Uh, but he's also going to present him as the new Moses uh, and the new uh, the the one that comes to fulfill the law that had been given unto Moses. Jesus said he didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. And I can't uh, focus on everything in the Sermon on the Mount because there's so many beautiful points. I'm only going to focus on the first few verses. Uh, because I want to show you how unique his teaching would have been to the ears of the hearer uh, of those there that day. It says, In seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? What it means is you recognize your need before God. You recognize your own shortcomings. You recognize that you don't have the answers. You don't have it all figured out. You need God. You're poor in spirit. Uh, obviously, if you think you're rich in spirit, then you don't see your need for God. That's why Jesus would later on say, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners unto repentance. People that know they're in sin. Because people that think they're righteous don't recognize their need for God. And then the next verse, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now there's several things uh, that this could be talking about, but it seems to me that what he's speaking about is you mourn because you recognize your spiritual condition before God. You recognize how sinful you are. It reminds me of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter number 6. He said, Woe is me! For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And I believe he cried out, Woe is me! He said it with sorrow and anguish, anguish as he recognized his need for God. And blessed are those that mourn, those that recognize how their sin has affected God. They recognize the lowliness of their spiritual condition, and they mourn. And it says, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. And the next verse says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meekness can talk about a lot of things, but it doesn't mean weak necessarily. Uh, what it does mean, however, is lowliness before the Lord, 
Once again, you have a, a lowly attitude before God. You come to Him humbly, meekly. You approach God. To approach somebody meekly basically means you approach them humbly. Uh, so you approach God. Moses was described as the meekest man on the earth. And look at how uh, many powerful miracles he wrought. And the people were afraid of Moses. So that doesn't mean that you're weak. Uh, but it does mean that before the Lord, you approach Him with a humility and with a tenderness. And, and you're meek. You're, you're not proud. You don't lift up yourself before the eyes of people. Uh, when Korah, Dathan, and Abiram came to challenge Moses, the Bible says he fell on his face uh, before them and, and before God. So uh, to be meek is not meaning that uh, you're weak necessarily, but it does mean you recognize your need for God, you recognize your lowly position, and you don't try to lord yourself over others. You're meek. Okay, and then it says, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. I remind you what Jesus said to the devil. He said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. You ought to hunger and thirst, but notice he didn't say after salvation. He said after righteousness. Uh, it's one thing to want to be saved. I see a lot of people that want to be saved because they want to escape hell, they want to get into heaven, uh, they want the benefits of heaven, they want the benefits of serving God, but they're not hungering and thirsting after righteousness, they're only hungering and thirsting after salvation. But the Bible says, blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. It's going above just salvation. Righteousness is the characteristic that describes God. God is righteous, personified. He's righteous as personified. So you ought to seek to be like Him. That's what it would mean to hunger and thirst. In other words, you crave it more than food. Uh, you'll fast days at a time because you want to be more like God. You seek to be righteous. So many times we fast and we pray uh, not to be like God, but we fast and pray so that uh, God will give us things. God, I'm fasting so that you'll answer this prayer. God, I'm fasting so that uh, you know I can get a new car or I can live in a better house or I can you know do this or that but we ought to fast and pray to be more like God to become more like him and then it says blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy now this is a challenge to us one of the things I discussed is David was a merciful man he could have killed Saul he didn't kill him he could have killed Mephibosheth he didn't kill him uh, so I believe that there's a lot of reasons why God did not kill David when he committed adultery with Bathsheba. Uh, number one, he repented. Number two, he was a worshiper. He had established a long living relationship with God. However, another pertinent point is he was a merciful man. And when he needed mercy, he got it. Let me just tell you something. If you want mercies from God, then uh, be merciful to other people. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And then the next says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Remember why God flooded the earth, because the Bible said the imaginations of man's heart was only evil continually. But you ought to be pure in heart. This doesn't mean you're never going to make a mistake, but it does mean that you approach God with an honesty, with an integrity. Um, you know, living with integrity, that's, that's something that's not talked about too much today. Uh, to be a man of integrity means that you're not going to just teach something and say something in public, but you're, you're not just going to talk the talk, but you're going to walk the walk. You're going to live what you preach. Uh, it's been said so often, I've heard my pastor say it many times, and he's, he's quoting another man by saying it, but it says, uh, preach the gospel everywhere you go, and when necessary, use words. In other words, let your life preach uh, a message to others. Okay, and then it says, uh, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. There's so much meat in this teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. We ought to always seek to make peace. The Bible says, Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. I think there's that caveat put into it, because we ought to seek to make peace with all men. But, um, but when it comes to a choice between whether or not we're seeking peace between man or we're seeking peace between us and God, we obviously ought to take the latter uh, of the two. We ought to seek to always please God. Uh, the disciple said we ought to please God rather than 
man. However, uh, the Bible does tell us that, uh, you know, when it comes to putting on the whole armor of God, it talks about the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, the sword of the Spirit and of the Word of God, the belt of truth. But then it says the sandals shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Seek to, to make warfare against the devil. Seek to fight against the devil. But remember, we're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, and against spiritual wickedness in high places. So while you're fighting this spiritual battle, and yes, sometimes it's going to cause you to come head to head, with people that are being used of the devil, uh, with the powers of this world, because so often people uh, give themselves into the powers of Satan, and you may have to face down certain people. Uh, you may even have to fight against certain people of your family. I'm not talking about literally fist fight, but I'm talking about it may be a struggle and a battle because they don't understand you living for God, and they may uh, combat that. But can I just tell you, the Bible commands us, while it does say take up the shield of faith, the sword of the Spirit, it tells us to walk in peace. Your sandals ought to be shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. You ought to always walk in peace. Seek to make peace seek to make peace. One of the greatest compliments that can ever be said about you is that you're a peacemaker. Um, you know, I see a lot of people that pose as peacemakers, but they're not really peacemakers. Uh, they're tattlers. They're busybodies. The Bible warns over and over again against those that sow discord among the brethren. But I'll tell you the one that's going to be blessed is the one that seeks to make peace between his brethren. Okay, let's keep going. It says, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Can I just tell you today, and I mentioned it uh, just a second ago, but you may be persecuted by your own family. Uh, some of you that have just recently received the Holy Ghost and been baptized, and I'm, I'm, I'm thankful to hear the good reports about what's become of this podcast and, and how it's ministered to certain people. Uh, some of you may be brand new uh, to this, and, and you've received the Holy Ghost, you've been baptized, you're attending church, but you're facing persecution from your family. You say, well, it's funny, before I came to God, I never had to face this, and now I'm having to face all this onslaught from my family. That's normal. That's normal. Remember, Satan is the God of this world. What that means is he's the God of this present age. And so as long as you live in this world and in this age, you're going to have to fight the devil. You might as well just, just uh, they used to call it man up, you know. My dad would say, man up, boy. And uh, that's kind of the way it is. You have to just kind of put uh, put on that, uh, that, that belt of truth and get ready to fight the fight. You're going to be fighting a fight. Uh, you're going to be persecuted. If you're living righteously, you're going to be persecuted. But the Bible says, blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The greater the persecution you face on the earth, the greater your reward will be in heaven. Uh, I'm reminded of something that Paul said. He said, For I reckon that the present suffering is not worthy to be compared to the glory which shall be revealed in us. I, I remember a man preaching about that verse of Scripture one time, and he said, If you ever find yourself feeling overwhelmed with the earth, get a, just one taste of heaven. And what is that taste of heaven? The Bible says the earnest of our inheritance is the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost is a down payment of heaven. If you ever find that I just can't take this life anymore, I can't take this persecution anymore, then what you need to do is get another another touch of the Holy Ghost. Go back to the altar and pray through again and get another touch of the Holy Ghost. It'll give you a whole new perspective because uh, the present suffering is not worthy to be compared to even just one second in glory. When you step uh, onto those streets of gold, and, and it's not about gold streets. It's not about walls of jasper and gates of pearl. It's not really about all that. It's just being in the presence of Jesus. No tears, no pain, no sorrow, uh, no humiliation. The former things will all be passed away. And so just get a perspective of heaven. Go back and get another taste of that down payment. Okay, and then it says this, uh, Blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. So you're uh, in good company. And then the next verse says this, Ye are the salt of the earth. Now that's this. This is so fascinating, and you could, uh, I could, I could spend a while talking about. It. I heard a man preach one time about the salt of the earth, and he talked about the value of salt in those days and how it was very, very valuable. And so Jesus is saying, uh, "You are the salt of the earth." Somebody out there can testify to the fact that salt can make some food taste a whole lot better. 
I've had some food that I've tasted in restaurants before, and the food was very bland. But when I added just a little bit of salt, uh, you know, it tasted a little bit better. It seasons everything. Jesus said, uh, we're meant to season the earth. We're the salt of the earth. Uh, we're the very, in other words, we're the very best of the earth. We ought to be the seasoning for the earth. You know, the earth is, is full of trouble. It's full of turmoil. It's tr full of pain. But we ought to be uh, what makes the earth a little bit better. We're the salt of the earth. We ought to be the very best that the earth has to offer. Uh, we ought to make this earth a little bit better. I heard a man tell me uh, just the other day, and maybe he'll listen to this and you know, kind of pay him a little bit of a compliment, but he told me he was working a job, and uh, he said that there was a, a house he went into to work, and of course he's a Holy Ghost-filled man, and he said um, he took his family with him, he, and the guy said, you know, there's something funny about you and your family. He said, every time you come into my house, you brighten this whole place up. Well, the reason why is because he was full of the Holy Ghost. We're the salt of the earth. But then the rest of the verse says this, But if the salt have lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted or seasoned? In other words, it is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. So notice what Jesus is saying here. If salt doesn't have any flavor, uh, what's it good for? It's not good for anything. You just cast it out and you trample on it. So uh, can I just tell you, you may claim the Holy Ghost, but if you lose your seasoning, uh, if you lose that good spirit that you're supposed to have in the world, if you lose your testimony in the eyes of men, and if you act like everybody else, and you go out there and you tell dirty jokes just like everybody else does and uh, you go out there with a bad attitude just like everybody else and you get mad and you cuss your boss out, uh, you've lost your savoring. You're good for nothing. You might as well just be thrown out and trampled in the field. You're not good for anything. And then he continues this theme. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Now let's stop here for a second. So Jesus said, ye are the light of the world. Now this is interesting. Let's flip over to the book of John chapter number one. I didn't plan to get into this so much. I told uh, all of you that listened to this before that I don't teach with notes in any of these except for uh, I think only two lessons. The one I taught about the Avenger of Blood, I did type out some notes the night before. I uh, didn't spend a whole lot of time doing it, but I, I try to just follow the Holy Ghost as I teach, and hopefully it's, it's ministering to somebody. But notice this. It says this, uh, John chapter one, and uh, let's go to verse number uh, four. In him, talking about Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Um, okay, and then let's go to verse number uh, six. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for witness to bear witness of the light. Talking about who? Jesus. It says that all men uh, through him might, be, might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. Jesus was the light of the world. And uh, it's so beautiful. If you go back to the tabernacle plan and talking about the candlestick, uh, there's several types of it. Uh, but one of those types, obviously, is Jesus. Jesus being the light of the world. Uh, but another type is, the Bible talks about in the book of Revelation, that it's a type of the church. It says that the seven golden candlesticks are the seven churches. So it's obviously a type of the church as well. And, and I think this is so beautiful because we're meant to reflect the light, the true light, which is Jesus. Jesus said, ye are the light of the world. In other words, we're supposed to reflect the light of Christ to the world. He said, ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Now, I've talked about cities of refuge uh, in a previous lesson way, way, way back. I don't even remember what lesson it was. But when we were talking about th uh, going through our series on the law, uh, we talked about the law of the avenger of blood. And there were cities of refuge that when that person had accidentally killed somebody, uh, they could flee to there and, and, and stay there until the, the case could be tried in a court of law. And by doing so, they could escape the avenger of blood. And so all of these places, these cities of refuge, were on hills so that they could be seen from every side, so that uh, the person that accidentally killed somebody could see that city of refuge and run towards it. Well, can I just tell you, the church ought to be a place of refuge from the world. Uh, 
we ought to be places of refuge from the world. Just like I remember I mentioned a second ago, we're the salt of the earth. We ought to be the very seasoning of the earth. We ought to be what makes the earth a little bit better. In the same way, we ought to be like those cities of refuge that people can look to and say, my God, I don't know how I'm going to escape this world. I don't. I, I just feel overwhelmed by the pressures of life. and I don't know how I'm going to escape. Uh, I just feel riddled with sin and problems and, and pain and, and sorrow. We can tell them, hey, look, we're like a city of refuge. Hey, come to the church. This is a place of refuge. I love how the Bible says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runneth into it and is safe. What are they running from? They're running from problems, from storms, from situations. I like to think of it this way. It's kind of like a, a, a storm, a massive storm that's coming, a tornado, and you're running with all your might trying to get away from that storm, and you finally see one high tower that you know that is impervious to the attack of that storm, and you can run into that tower. That's the name of Jesus. That's the church. That's what we ought to be. We ought to be a city set on a hill that cannot be hid. And then we're given this challenge by Jesus. And he says, neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on, uh, excuse me while I turn the page here, but on a candlestick. And it says, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Once again, we are a living testimony of the power of God. So can I challenge you today, live in such a way. If you have the Holy Ghost and you've been baptized in Jesus' name, you ought to be living in such a manner that tells everybody that a real change has come to your life. If you have not received the Holy Ghost and you have not been baptized in Jesus' name, can I tell you, you're not the salt of the earth. You're not the light that can shine for every man because you don't have nothing to offer them. You need the Holy Ghost and you need baptism in Jesus' name uh, in order to be the salt of the earth and to be the light that shines before all men. You say, well, this was before the Holy Ghost was poured out. Who's he talking to? Remember, he's teaching his disciples. He's teaching his disciples. He's showing them the way that they ought to be. They're supposed to be the salt of the earth. They're supposed to be a light. They're supposed to be a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. You say, well, the multitudes could... Uh, overhear the teaching as well. Well, listen, who's he talking to then? He's talking to children of Israel. Yes, they were supposed to be the light of the world. They were supposed to be a city set on a hill that could not be hidden. But they had become, begun to internalize everything, and instead of reaching out uh, to other nations and showing them uh, about how beautiful it is to serve God and the benefits of serving the Lord, uh, instead they were internalizing it all and thinking that they were better than everybody else. Uh, in fact, in one place he said, I would that you were all priests. That's what God wanted. He wanted them all to be priests to the world. Uh, remember he told Abraham, through you, through your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That was the intention. But they began to internalize everything and think it was all about them. Can I tell you that even if, if you are a part of the church, it's not all about you. We're supposed to be shining a light in the midst of a darkened world and giving hope uh, to the hopeless. Amen. So uh, let's return here to the word of the Lord. And it says in verse 17, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Next verse, For verily I say unto you, Till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. What does that mean, jot and tittle? Basically, uh, it'd be kind of like saying, you know, the crossing of a T or the dotting of an I. Uh, that's kind of the English equivalent. So not even the smallest thing's going to pass uh, from the law till all be fulfilled. So Jesus is saying, I didn't come to destroy it. I came to fulfill the law. So remember that because so many times today you hear, well, we're not under the law anymore. We're under grace. It's true that we're under grace. But that does not mean that the principles of the law shouldn't be lived out in our life. I'm not talking about wearing certain types of, 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 uh, of garments like they had to do. And I'm not talking about don't plow an ox and an ass together. And I'm not talking about, uh, you know, some of those other laws, uh, the ceremonial laws and the laws for the nation of Israel. But God's moral law does not change. Is it still wrong to commit adultery? Yes, it's still wrong to commit adultery. Is it still wrong to kill and steal and to, in all of these things, to bear false witness? Uh, yes, it's still wrong to do all of these things. Is it still right to honor your father and mother? Yes, it's still right. That's God's moral law. God's moral law does not change. We're not under the ceremonial law. We're not under the law for the nation of Israel. We're not under, uh, you know, the law about the bulls and goats and calves and all these other things and the blood sacrifices. 
because Jesus fulfilled that. That's what he's talking about, fulfilling the law. He fulfilled all of that stuff in the law. However, uh, God's moral law does not change. It's still wrong to commit adultery. And in case you had any question about that, uh, let's just uh, keep reading here. It says, verse 19, uh, whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, the, uh, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. All right, and then he goes on to say, and, and really that's self-explanatory. There's a lot that I could talk about with some of these things, but I'm not going to talk about all of these. Then he says this, uh, You have heard that it was said by them in old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Boy, that's strong teaching, isn't it? But remember what I said, God's moral law does not change. In fact, Jesus uh, came to fulfill it. He actually made it stronger. There's some things that are stronger under the days of grace. Whereas it was wrong to kill in old time, uh, now it's wrong just to say, uh, to be angry with your brother and to say raka to your brother and, and, uh, uh, and to call your brother a fool. A fool would be a horrible uh, insult, one of the worst insults you could say. Remember it says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. So to call somebody a fool is kind of the equivalent of saying, you godless person, you. Uh, that's a very serious accusation. Then it says this, therefore, if uh, thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there remember that thy brother hath ought against thee. It didn't say that you have ought against your brother. It says, but remember that your brother hath ought against thee. Leave there thy gift uh, before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. So if I can kind of give um, just a, a version of this here, it would be like, let's just say um, I brought a missions offering. Our church takes up missions offerings, and let's just say I brought $500 to give to the missions fund. And so uh, that night they're taking up the offering, and I walk up, and the ushers at our church, sometimes we have the ushers stand in the front. And I walk up and I'm about to put that $500 in the plate. And all of a sudden, a memory hits me. And I said, oh no, uh, brother so-and-so has something against me. Well, I'd waste my time and I'd waste my money to throw the money in the offering. God's not going to honor it. What he's saying here is if you go up to the altar and you're ready to give your gift, you better just leave it there at the altar. What I should do is just give it to that usher, say, hey, hang on to this for a minute. I got something I got to take care of. And then go and talk to that brother and make things right. And then come back and say, all right, brother, I'm ready. Here, give it back to me. I'm going to put it in the offering plate. Uh, that's kind of uh, uh, what Jesus is talking about. In fact, it's, it's exactly what he's talking about. You might as well just leave your gift at the altar. You might as well forget. In fact, one place uh, I'm reminded of in the scripture talking about between a husband and wife, uh, the Bible tells us that if you have something between you and your wife, uh, your prayers will be hindered. It says you better make it right that your prayers be not hindered. So uh, the thing is, if you have something against your brother or your brother even has something against you and you have not at least attempted to make that right, uh, your gift will be meaningless before the Lord. Now, that being said, let me at least give the flip side to it because I have seen some people uh, worry about this because... Uh, for instance, let me just make a statement. Let's say there's a brother or sister in the church that's very, very easily offended. And uh, the Bible does warn us about offending one of these little ones. But let's just say there's a brother or sister that's very easily offended. And you come into church and you get there a little bit before them. And so you park in their spot, not realizing it's their spot. And they get offended and mad and upset. Um, you know... I believe, you know, it, it's fine if you want to try to go and make things right with them, but if they don't forgive you at that point, uh, then it's off of your shoulders. You have done your part. And so can I just say, there, there is another side to this, uh, because there's some people that would fret and worry because they tried to make things right with somebody, and that person just will not accept uh, their repentance. But remember, when you go back to that person, you say, I'm sorry, would you please forgive me? It's then in their ball court. They've got to forgive you. 
Uh, and if they don't forgive you, it's then upon their shoulders. It's no longer upon your shoulders. Um, that doesn't mean that maybe you can't make another attempt to go back to them later. Uh, however, once you truly go to them and you're truly repentant in your heart, and only God knows, and you truly say you're sorry, it's then up to them to forgive you. Okay, let's move forward. It says, um, verse number uh, uh, 25, Agree with thine adversary quickly, whilst thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. So then he goes on, he says, Verily I say unto thee, Thou shalt by no means come out thence, till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. I think that's self-explanatory. But then in verse 27, You have heard it said, uh, by them of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. That's obviously one of the Ten Commandments. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. God judges it while it's still in the heart. Uh, in fact, in the book of Proverbs, chapter number 6, I believe it's somewhere around verse number 16, these six, six things that the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him. Uh, and then it goes on, it says, a proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, uh, a heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift and running to mischief, uh, uh, a false witness that uh, speaketh lies, he that soweth discord among the brethren. Hopefully I quoted that right, I just quoted it off the top of my head. Uh, but notice, it deals with internal matters. It talks about uh, a proud look. It talks about a lying tongue, uh, hands that shed innocent blood. So some of these things are external, but then it goes on to say, uh, a, a heart that deviseth wicked imaginations. So it deals with an internal matter. And uh, pride is an internal matter. A heart that it devises wicked imaginations is an internal matter. Uh, so God judges it while it's still in the heart. The, the, he, he, he knows what's in your heart and what's in your spirit. So somebody may say, well, I'm not guilty of adultery. Uh, but can I just say it starts in the heart? It starts in the heart. Um, you know, it's kind of like say, well, I've been faithful to my wife. And, and you may have been faithful physically, but have you been faithful emotionally? Uh, have you been faithful in your mind and in your spirit? Uh, because uh, there's more than one way to commit adultery, and I'm just going to put it that way and, and leave it be. Uh, and then, because this this according to what Jesus said, he said, you've already committed adultery in your heart if you've lusted after another woman. So he deals with it while it's still a heart issue. Can I just say, take care of it uh, uh, while it's still in the early stages. In fact, in the book of James, and I'm going to see if I can find this quickly, and again, uh, I don't have the reference in front of me, so I'm going to try to just find this on the fly. But the Bible warns us and tells us to kill sin uh, in the infant stages. Uh, verse number 13 of James chapter 1, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Now watch the process here. Then when lust hath conceived, Notice it says conceived. A baby's born. That's what conception is. It bringeth forth sin. So instead of bringing forth a baby, it when lust conceives. So it starts with lust. Okay, notice the process. It says every man is tempted when he is drawn away. Notice that drawing away of his own lust. Uh, his own lust is so strong, it draws him away from the truth. It draws him away from God. It says drawn away of his own lust and enticed. It's almost kind of like uh, fishing. You know, it's, it's like uh, you throw that lure out there and the fish takes the bait and he bites onto it. At first he may nibble. Sometimes you'll kind of, if, you, if you've ever fished with a cork, uh, sometimes you'll see that cork kind of bob a little bit. And if you're too quick, you'll yank on it when it's just a, a fish just kind of nibbling at the hook. But you've got to learn you don't yank it until that, uh, that, um, uh, that uh, uh, excuse me, I'm sorry, the cork. <laughs> I, I'll think of it here in a minute. Till that cork goes all the way under, then you notice, ah, it's, it's took the bait. It's, it's snatched onto that hook. And then you pull and you catch it within that fish's mouth and you reel it in. And you may have to fight with it for a while, but this is kind of the way it's talking about. He's drawn away of his own lust and enticed, okay? And it says, then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. So when lust conceives, it brings forth a sin baby. And then it says, and sin, when it is finished, or when is one translation says, when it is full grown, bringeth forth death. If you don't take care of sin in the early stages, when it's just an enticement, and then when it goes from enticement to conception, when it goes from conception to sin, and when it goes from sin to, to death, you've got to catch it in the early stages because the further along it gets in the process, the harder it is to stop. 
And so Jesus is warning and he says, if you uh, lust after a woman, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. So stop it while it's still a heart issue. This goes beyond just committing adultery. It can also be said, uh, remember Jesus, one of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not covet. Why is it wrong to covet? It starts in the heart. It starts in the heart, but it doesn't stop in the heart. It may start with just saying, man, I wish I could have my neighbor's oxen. Man, I wish I could have my neighbor's wife. Man, I wish I could have my neighbor's car. I wish I could have my neighbor's uh, this or that. It may start that way, but pretty soon, if you don't take care of that in the early stages, then you might find yourself going over and committing another one of those, uh, those uh, talking about thou shalt not steal or thou shalt not kill. You might even kill your neighbor to obtain what he had, or uh, you might commit adultery with his wife. If you don't take care of that coveting, take care of sin in the early stages. Okay, I did not plan to get into all this, and uh, so please excuse all of this. So um, I'm going to go ahead and uh, stop at least with the Sermon on the Mount here, because there's so many other things, and, and if I keep on teaching here, we're going to be here a long long, long time. I could talk for a long time about the Sermon on the Mount because every verse is filled with so much gold. But you can already see the uniqueness of Jesus' teaching and the profundity uh, in Jesus' teaching. And so you can imagine what the, what the uh, crowd said that day. And it says, verse 28 of chapter 7, so we're going to skip ahead to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and you can kind of sympathize after hearing some of these things here today. It says in verse 28, And it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine. Doctrine is teaching. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. So the scribes could teach, well, the law says this and the rabbis say this and we defer to them. And, and But Jesus is teaching them as one that has authority. Why? Because he's the one that gave the law. He's God in flesh. He gave the law so he can teach with authority. And then it says in verse number 8, And when he was come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And behold, there came a leper and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. Uh, now it's interesting, the leper recognizes Jesus' authority, and he says, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Uh, can I just tell you this, that, that it's one thing to believe that Jesus is able to heal you, but do you believe that he's willing? And the leper reached out and he said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And then it says, and Jesus put forth his hand and touched him, saying, I will be thou clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Now already we see something completely different about Jesus. Because remember, when the leper, whatever he touched according to the law, was unclean. If the leper uh, uh, was to lie down on a bed, um, he would be, uh, the bed would become unclean. And if the leper was to go into a house, that house is unclean. And remember they had to cry out, say, unclean, 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 so that they could warn everybody, stay away from me. You don't want to uh, touch me because I'm unclean, I'm unclean. Well, uh, here, uh, uh, Jesus was able to touch this leper, and instead of the leper making him unclean, Jesus made the leper clean. So we already see a difference here. Can I tell you that only Jesus can touch that sin-sick soul, and only Jesus can make it clean? And it won't rub off on Jesus. Don't worry about it. It's not going to rub off on Jesus. It's not going to make him unclean, but he can touch the unclean soul and make it clean. And so we see this miracle. Now, there's many other miracles. According to the book of Luke, uh, we've already read about how he cast out the devil and the, the demon-possessed uh, uh, man cried out, uh, obviously the devil speaking through him, and said, we know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. And that's in Luke chapter number 4. And so uh, we see that Jesus cast out devils on a regular basis, and they would say, you are the Son of God. Uh, but Jesus would command them to be silent. And uh, so many times he did this. And then some of the other miracles that Jesus did is he opened the blinded eyes. Um, and one of my favorite accounts of this is found in the book of John. Now this lesson is going to run a little bit longer than usual because I'm, I'm trying to summarize uh, the life of Jesus. And we find uh, in the book of John, and um, let me see if I can find this reference here real quick. Uh, the Bible tells us in the book of John... Uh, I believe it is um, chapter number, you'll have to pardon me here for just a moment. Yes, chapter 9 and verse 1, And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? 
Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Remember what I said earlier. It says, When he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay, and said unto him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is by interpretation sent. He went his way, therefore, and washed, and came seeing. Now, I, I, there's so many things to talk about in this passage. Lord, help me to know what to say, because uh, there are so many things I want to say about this passage. It's full of beautiful truths. Uh, number one, the disciples had this misconception that just because the man was blind, uh, it was caused by some kind of a sin, and Jesus corrected this. So can I tell you, let's not get in that trap today. You may see somebody that's uh, that's blind or that's lame. Don't think it's because of some kind of a sin. Uh, you know, some people are just born with with some kind of uh, with some kind of uh, physical defect. That doesn't mean because they're in sin. Uh, now there are sometimes where the Bible talks about literally a woman that had a spirit of infirmity. So there are sometimes that spirits can cripple people, and in that case, it made her bowed over. It literally made her a hunchback caused her to constantly have to look at the floor. It oppressed her, in other words, uh, and, and, and forced her to always look downward and to walk around with like a hunchback. And so uh, Jesus actually rebuked the spirit of infirmity and delivered this woman from a spirit. Uh, there were other times where the Bible says that demons made people mute. Or uh, how about the boy that uh, when Jesus came down from the Mount of Transfiguration, uh, the the father brought his demon-possessed boy before Jesus, and uh, the Bible says that uh, the father told him, he said, it often cast him into the fire or into the water. It, in other words, what it looks like is that the boy was having regular seizures, uh, but they weren't normal seizures. It was actually trying to cast him into the fire or to the water to destroy him. And Jesus perceived that he was demon-possessed, and he cast out the evil spirit. And uh, it was a spirit of death because uh, when Jesus uh, rebuked the spirit, the boy fell down as though dead. But then Jesus touched him and raised him up. I believe Jesus raised him from the dead. That's just my personal opinion. Uh, don't judge me for that. That's just my opinion. Uh, but here in this case, the Bible says that uh, this boy was blind, but notice why he was blind. It says, Neither hath this man sinned nor his parents. This is verse 3 of chapter 9 of John. It says, But that the works of God should be made manifest in him. Now, if you didn't just hear that and say, Oh, wow, uh, you're not quite like me. Because I, re I read that, and that's overwhelming. Jesus said the only reason this man was born blind was so that the works of God would be made manifest in him. Wow. That's a strong, powerful statement. But it's what Jesus said. We may not be able to understand the ways of God. His ways are so far above our ways. But imagine, how long was this man blind? Uh, well, apparently he was, he was, he was a man that uh, was, was at least a young adult. Uh, so he had to suffer his life with this blindness just so that the works of God one day could be manifest in his life. Can I tell you, you may have a problem or a situation in your life, and you may think you're, you're going to have to live with that problem for the rest of your life. But can I say, it may not be the will of God for you to always have to live with that sickness. It may not be the will of God for you to always have to live with that problem. Because it may be that God has ordained that one day God's going to walk on the scene in your life and He's going to heal your body so it can be a testimony. You see, because what was going to happen, why is it that this man would have to be blind for so long? Uh, because, let's keep reading, okay? Uh, verse number 7, And he said unto him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is by interpretation sent. He went his way and washed, and came seeing. The neighbors therefore, and they which were, uh, had seen him, that he was blind, said, Is not this he that sat by and begged? Some said, This is he. Others said, He is like him. But he said, I am he. Therefore said they unto him, How were thine eyes opened? He answered and said, A man that is called Jesus made clay and anointed mine eyes and said unto me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And I went and washed and I received sight. The people knew that he was blind. Because he had been blind for so long, the people recognized him immediately and said, We know that guy. He was blind. How is he seeing now? And the man was able to give a powerful testimony of the miracle works, uh, of the miraculous works of God. Can I just tell you that you may be going through a problem. You don't understand why you're going through it. But can I tell you, don't stop praying for healing. Don't stop praying for an answer because it may be that you 
you've gone through this problem for a while because God knows that you could be a powerful testimony to the world when you receive your miracle. So just keep on praying. But that's not all I want to say about this passage of Scripture because there's so many things to say. Notice how Jesus healed him. He spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. Why did he do this this way? Remember how God created man in the first place. Back up to the book of Genesis chapter number uh, uh, 2. And uh, let's, uh, let's go to verse number, um, uh, excuse me here for just a moment. I'm trying to find the verse here. Uh, and it says that the Lord God, here we go, verse number uh, uh, 7. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. He formed man out of the dust of the ground. What I believe is Jesus made a brand new eyeball out of the dirt of the ground. He spat into it. But notice that it wasn't just like Jesus said, I'm going to make this easy on you. And just kind of took and spat on the ground, made him a brand new eyeball, put a couple of new sets of eyeballs, put it in there. And said, all right, receive your miracle. No, the man had personal responsibility in his own miracle. He had to obey. So often this happened. What did Jesus tell the lepers by the side of the road? Some of this I'm summarizing. Jesus told them, go show yourself to the priest. While they were on the way, they were healed. A lot of times, uh, whether or not you receive a miracle is going to depend upon your level of obedience. Are you submitted to God? Are you submitted to a man of God? If you obey God will heal you if you don't obey. The Bible says if you be willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, uh, in other words, you're going to be cursed. And so let me just say this here today, that a lot of times Jesus would say, uh, you know, go and wash. Or Jesus would say, do this or do that. And uh, many miracles that he did, in fact, most of the miracles Jesus did was uh, uh, he would give them a command. And whether or not they would respond to that command, uh, you know, would determine whether or not they were healed. I'm reminded of Naaman in the Old Testament, where the prophet Elisha told him to go wash in the Jordan River and he didn't like it but he went and he told him dip seven times and he, he you know I'm wondering what he probably thought this is just so stupid this is so idiotic and the servant said look if the man of God had told you to do some great thing you would have done it why don't you just do it it's easy enough to do so he went out there and on the seventh time when he came up he was clean God wants to see if you're going to be obedient if you're submitted you'll receive so much more for God from God and so many times Jesus would give them a direct command uh, and, and in fact, I'm reminded also of uh, the miracle of the loaves and fishes. The Bible says five loaves and two small fish. There was a young lad there which had five loaves and two small fish. And Jesus fed over 5,000 people, 5,000 men besides women and children, uh, with those five loaves and two small fish. But can I tell you this? Somebody had to be willing to give those five loaves and two small fish. And can I tell you here today that you may say, but what I have is so little. I don't have much talent. I don't have much ability. Just give what you've got to God. Just obey Him. If He asks for it, just give it. Uh, and, and God can take it and multiply it. Do so much more with it than what you could ever imagine. Okay, so in, in this case, Jesus healed and uh, such a beautiful miracle took place. So he healed, blind, he opened blinded eyes. Uh, the Bible talks about he calls the lame to walk. I'm reminded of the story of uh, the story, excuse me, of blind Bartimaeus who sat by the roadside. And he said, "Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me." And uh, Jesus acted like he didn't even hear him. And he cried out again, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And the people kept trying to tell him, shut up, Bartimaeus, shut up. Uh, and then finally he said, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus heard him and he said, come here. And they said, cheer up, Bartimaeus, he's calling you. And then so Bartimaeus threw off his blind beggar's cloak because he knew he was about to get his miracle. And Jesus still asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, I want my sight. And Jesus healed him. He said, thy faith hath made thee whole. Go your way. So his faith is what made him whole. Uh, even Jesus, when he went back to his hometown, says he couldn't do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. So faith, you need to be submitted to God to receive a miracle, but you also need faith in God. You've got to believe. Remember what the, 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 uh, uh, the man said, the leper, he said, if you're willing. Uh, you've got to believe that God's not only able, but God is willing. Uh, the Bible says in the book of Hebrews chapter 11 and verse number 6, For without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Okay, uh, in closing, let me just talk about some of uh, the greatest miracles of Jesus and some of the parables of Jesus. Uh, some of the greatest miracles, one of them is found in the book of John, 
And uh, I believe it's chapter number 11. Let me see if I'm right here. Uh, again, I'm doing this off of the fly, so you'll have to be patient with me. But I believe it's the book of John, chapter 11, or is it, yes, chapter 11. And it talks about the raising of Lazarus. Lazarus was a friend of Jesus, and so was Mary and Martha, uh, and, and Lazarus was their brother. And uh, they sent word to Jesus, and they said, hey, Lazarus, your friend is sick. But Jesus just delayed, and, uh, you know, he died. Lazarus died, and uh, Jesus came four days later, and they said, uh, both of them told Jesus, they said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But there's something very, very important in all of this. I want to read what Martha said to Jesus. Let's go to uh, John chapter number 11 and verse number 19. And many of the Jews came to Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary sat still in the house. Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou had been here, my brother had not died. But I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. Jesus saith unto her, Thy brother shall let rise again. Martha saith unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Now, I want to stop and tell you uh, what a lot of our problems is. It matches Martha. She says, If you had been here, past tense, my brother would not have died. Lord, I believe that you've done mighty works in the past. And I believe that if you, if, if you had just been here some days ago, my brother wouldn't have died. Because I, I know you heal the sick. So she said, if you had been here. And so many times we believe in what God's done in the past. Some of you that's been listening to the stories about my grandpa, thank God. But can I tell you, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's Hebrews 13 and 8. So Jesus does not change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. What he did before, he will surely do again. He parted the Red Sea years ago. He can still do the same thing again. He caused the walls of Jericho to fall. He can still do the same thing again. If he healed the leper, he can still do it today. If he raises the, rose, uh, raised the dead back in the day, he can still do it today. She said, well, I believe in the past. And then she says, uh, uh, I know, in verse 24, that he shall rise again. I believe in the future and the resurrection. Think about it. It's, it's kind of silly, okay? Just stop and think about this for a minute. For without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So first of all, you've got to believe in his existence. Let's stop and think about that. So you have faith in his existence. Probably none of you are listening to this uh, that don't at least have faith in the existence of God. Otherwise, you probably wouldn't be listening unless you're listening just to mock it or just out of curiosity's sake. Uh, but can I just say a few things um, that are just coming to me right now? And, and uh, hopefully I'm following after the Holy Ghost. I'm doing my best to do that today. Uh, but... Uh, you know, if, if you're coming to God, you first of all got to accept the fact that God made the world. He created everything that you see and know. God made the world. That's incredible to believe that, that he created everything by his spoken word. Then you got to believe that God created you and that God created me. That God formed all of us out of the dust of the ground through Adam. And, and he breathed into his nostrils and man became a living soul. And he created Eve and took the rib out of man and, and made Eve. And, and that's where all living comes from. And you've got to believe that. You've got to believe in, in what the Bible says about Jesus coming and a virgin miraculously conceiving and bearing a child. And then you've also got to believe that when you die, death is not the end, but you're going to rise again. So you can believe that God created the world. You can believe that God caused the walls of Jericho to fall, that God parted the Red Sea, that God spoke through a donkey to Balaam, uh, that God uh, came to earth in, in the form of Jesus Christ and he healed the sick and he raised the dead and he even raised himself from the dead after three days. And you've got to, and then you've got to believe that, that in the future he's going to uh, cause all of us to rise again when we die. But, but stop and think, you can believe all of that, but you can't believe that God can heal your cold today. But you can't believe that God can open your blinded eyes today. But you can't believe that God can't touch your sick mother and heal her body. And I feel the Holy Ghost as I'm talking about this. So apparently God wants me to talk about this. But let me just tell you something. Uh, how can you have faith that God created the heavens and the earth and, and that God breathed into a, a little ball of dirt and it became man, but you can't believe that God can heal your headache right now? Can I tell you, it doesn't take much faith. You've got to believe that he is, but also that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Believe that he's able, but also believe that he's willing. And can I tell you, he's willing. He's able and he's willing. Amen. Amen. Well, hopefully that's been a blessing to somebody. But then it says, uh, Jesus, notice how he responded to it. Verse 25, Jesus said unto her, I am 
present tense, the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in him shall never die. Believest thou this? She saith unto him, Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. All right, we're going to skip forward a little bit. Verse 40, uh, let's go down to verse number 38. Jesus, therefore, again groaning in himself, cometh to the grave. It was a cave, and a stone lay upon it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him that was dead, saith unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he hath been dead four days. Jesus saith unto her, Said I not unto thee, that if thou wouldest believe, that thou shouldest see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me, and I knew that thou hearest me always. But because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. And when he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice, saying, Lazarus, come forth. It's been said so many times, the reason why he had to call him out by name, because if he hadn't said a name and just said, come forth, all of the dead would have raised and come forth. He said, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound about with a napkin. Jesus saith unto him, Loose him, and let him go. And so Jesus raised the dead several times. This wasn't the only occasion. Uh, he also uh, raised Jairus' daughter uh, from the dead. Uh, he raised the, uh, uh, the servant that was sick. Uh, he raised, uh, uh, he was sick, um, not necessarily dead, but sick. And then he also raised uh, the widow woman. He raised her son. So he raised the dead on, on multiple occasions. Um, Jesus uh, calmed the water. One of the greatest miracles he did was the disciples were on a boat and the storm was great and exceedingly tossed, but Jesus was asleep in the bottom of the boat. And they said, Master, don't you care that we're perishing? Wake up. Help us bail the water out of the boat. In other words, Jesus walks in on the boat and he said, Why are you so fearful, O you of little faith? He said, Peace, be still. And there was an immediate calming. And they said, What manner of man is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Can I tell you this today? You can't say Jesus was just a great prophet or just another man. The Bible says he was Lord of the Sabbath. He was Lord over death. Uh, he could command death to leave a body and raise somebody from the dead. He could even raise his own self from the dead. And then also he could speak to the wind and waves and calm them. And so these were some of his greatest miracles. Now some of his greatest teaching, uh, you ever heard the parable of uh, the prodigal son that left his father? And the Bible says that the, the son went and, and uh, he demanded of his father that he would give him his inheritance, which he wasn't supposed to get his inheritance until his father was dead. So he's basically spitting in his father's face saying, I wish you were dead. Hurry up and give me my money. So the father gave him his money and he went and he spent it all on riotous living, on prostitutes and on drinking and partying. And when he was, uh, uh, then a famine came and all of his money was gone. And he went and he fed pigs, which that was the lowest of low. They weren't even supposed to touch pigs. Jews weren't, uh, according to the law. They were not even supposed to touch them. It couldn't, not only could they not eat them, they weren't even supposed to touch them. But he sought to even feed himself with the, the, the food that the pigs fed themselves with. And then he said, he came to himself at this moment. He said, my, how many of my servants in my father's house have, have bread enough and to spare? He said, I will go into my father and tell him, Father, I've sinned against you and, and against, uh, uh, against everyone. And so he goes back home, and when he's yet a, a long way off, the father runs to him and falls on his neck and kisses him. And, and the son says, Father, I've sinned against you. Just make me as one of your hired servants. And he said, No, bring out the breast robe and put it on him. And bring out the signet ring and put it on his hand. He said, For thus my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And his brother was out in the field, the prodigal son's brother. Uh, and, he, and he was mad over the way his father had treated him. And so why Jesus told this parable was uh, because Jesus, remember, he said, I came not to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. So here's the, the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees and the religious leaders of those times judging the prostitute and the sinner that came into the kingdom before them. And they were jealous of them, and so they were judging them. Uh, but Jesus is saying, you're like that older brother out in the field. Uh, you know, you're, you're, you're judging them, said, but I came to call sinners to repentance. He could deal with the sinner, but that brother thought he was righteous. And uh, his bad attitude, you know, here's the thing. He may not have gone out into the field, but his out into, excuse me, out into the world and, and spent all his money on riotous living. He may have stayed with his father and stayed faithful to his father. Uh, but however, his attitude could still keep him out of the courts of heaven. Uh, and so there's so many beautiful parables that were told. Also the parable of the sower, uh, where uh, Jesus talks about a sower went forth to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell by the, the wayside. The birds of the air came and devoured uh, them up, and said some fell by, uh, by the sea, 
uh, and, and or excuse me, some fell upon stony ground and it, and it sprung up immediately, but because it had no depth of earth, um, it, uh, it, it withered away and died. And then it said some uh, fell among thorns and, and it grew up, but the thorns choked it and it became unfruitful. And some fell on good ground and brought forth fruit, some 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100. And when the disciples asked Jesus, it said, explain this parable to us, Jesus said those that uh, fall by the wayside are those that they hear the word, but they don't understand it. And the enemy just comes and devours it uh, and takes it out of their heart so they can't be saved. And then he said those that receive it upon a stony ground are those that receive it with joy when they hear it, but, uh, but then per persecution arises because of the word and, and, and they fall away. And then he said, uh, some fall, the one that fell among thorns are those that receive the word, but, uh, but the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches uh, choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. He said, but others receive it and bring forth fruit, some 30 fold, some 60 fold, some 100 fold. So these are some of the uh, beautiful parables that Jesus told. He, sold, he told so many wonderful parables. Well, I know I haven't given an exhaustive study of the life of Jesus, but hopefully I've discussed enough of the life of Jesus uh, to kind of give a brief summary of it. So let's end with a word of prayer. Jesus, we thank you so much for your word. God, I ask that you would continue to speak to us through your word. Give us understanding and revelation, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. We hope you have enjoyed this Bible 101 episode. Please leave a comment to let us know what you think. Also email BibleTTabernacle29 at gmail.com. That is B-I-B-L-E-T-T-A-B-E-R-N-A-C-L-E 29 at gmail.com to leave us comments, questions, or maybe ideas for future episodes. Thank you so much for listening.